Section 34 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11, Section 34. Paul de Jardin by Grace King What a man stands for in the life and literature of his day is easily enough estimated when his name passes current in his language for a hitherto undesignated shade of meaning. One of the most acute and sensitive of contemporary French critics, Monsieur Jules Lemaitre, in an article on an evolutionary phase in modern literature, expresses its significant characteristic to be l'idéal de vie intérieure, la morale absolue, si j'ai puis m'exprimer ainsi, le désardinisme, the ideal of spiritual life, absolute morality, if I may so express myself, désardinisme. The term, quickly appropriated by another French critic, and one of the remarkable women of letters of her day, the late Baron Blaise de Berry, is literally interpreted as summing up whatever is highest and purest and of most rare attainment in the idealism of the present hour. And she further, with the intuition of her sex, feeling a pertinent question before it is put, singles out the vital germ of difference which distinguishes this young writer as typical of the idealism of the hour and makes him its name-giver. What is in other men the indirect and hidden source of their public acts is in Paul Desjardins the direct source of life itself, the life to be lived, and also of the mode in which that life is to be conceived and to be made apparent to the world. Of the life, sincerity is its prime virtue. Each leader proves his faith by his individual conduct, as by his judgments on events and men. The pure passion of abstract thought fires each to do the best that is his to do. His life is to be the word-for-word -word translation of his own spirit. The deathbed repentance of a century, born sceptical, reared decadent, and professing practical materialism, the conversion of a literature from the pure passion of the senses to the pure passion of abstract thought, the assumption of an apostolic mission by journalists, novelists, playwrights, college professors and scientific masters, will doubtless furnish the century to come with one of its most curious and interesting fields of study. It is an episode in evolution which may indeed be termed dramatic, this fifth act of the 19th century epic of France, or it might be called, of Paris, the story of its pilgrimage from revolution to evolution. Monsieur Melchior de Vogue, himself one of the apostles of the new life, or of the new work in the old life of France, describes the preparation of the national soil for the growth of Desjardinism. He says, The French children, who were born just before 1870, grew up in an atmosphere of patriotic mourning, and amidst the discouragement of defeat. National life, 
such as it became reconstituted after that terrible shock, revealed to them on all sides nothing but abortive hopes, paltry struggles of interest, and a society without any other hierarchy but that of money, and without other principle or ideal than the pursuit of material enjoyment. Literature reflected these same tendencies. It was dejected or vile, and distressed the heart by its artistic dryness, or disgusted it by its trivial realism. Science itself began to appear to many what it is in reality, namely a means, not an end. Its prestige declined, and its infallibility was questioned. Above all, it was clear from two evident social symptoms that if science can satisfy some very distinguished minds, it can do nothing to moralise and discipline societies. For a hundred years after the destruction of the religious and political dogmas of the past, France had lived as best she could on some few fragile dogmas, which had in their turn been consecrated by a naive superstition. These dogmas were the principles of 1789, the almightiness of reason, the efficacy of absolute liberty, the sovereignty of the people, in a word, the whole credo of the revolution. In order to shake that faith in these principles, it was necessary that human reason, proclaimed infallible, should turn its arms against itself. And that is what happened. Scientific criticism, after having ruined old dogmatism, made a short work of the revolutionary legend as of the monarchical one, and showed itself as pitiless for the rights of man as it had been for the rights of God. All these causes combined sufficiently explain the nihilism and pessimism which invaded the souls of the young during the past ten years. Clear-sighted boys analysed life with a vigour and a precision unknown to their predecessors. Having analysed it, they found it bad. They turned away from life with fear and horror. There was heard from the peaks of intelligence a great cry of discouragement. Beware of deceitful nature. Fear life. Emancipate yourself from life. This cry was first uttered by the masters of contemporary thought, a Schopenhauer, a Taine, a Tolstoy. Below them, thousands of humbler voices repeated in chorus. According to each one's turn of mind, the new philosophy assumed shades different in appearance. Buddhist nirvana, atheistic nihilism, mystic asceticism, but all these theories proceeded from the same sentiment, and all these doctrines may be reduced to the same formula. Let us depreciate life. Let us escape from its snares. Paul Desjardins, by name and family, belongs to the old bourgeoisie of France, that reserve force of Gallic virtue to which the French people always look for help in political and moral crises. Like most of the young men of distinction in the French world of letters, he combines professional and literary work. He is Professor of Rhetoric at the Lycée Verve in Paris and a member of the brilliant editorial staff of the Journal des Débats. 
Paris offered to his grasp her same old choice of subjects, to his eye the same aspects of life, which form her one freehold for all artists, and he had but the instrument of his guild, his pen. The series of his collected contributions to journals and magazines bear a no more distinctive title than the hackneyed one of Notes Contemporaines, but the subtitles betray at once the trend of originality, great souls and little lives, the obscure ones, companions of the new life. And in the treatment of these subjects, and especially in his sketches of character and critical essays upon the literature of his day, Desjardins originality resolves itself more and more clearly into spirituality of thought, expressed in an incorruptible simplicity of style. To quote from Madame de Bury again, one of the chief characteristics of Paul Desjardins' utterances is their total disinterestedness, their absolute detachment from self. Nowhere else have you the same indescribable purity, the same boundless generosity of joy in others' good, the same pervading altruism. These writings were the expression of a mind on a journey, a quest, not of any one definite mind, for so completely has the personality of the author been subdued to his mission, that his mind seems typical of the general mind of young France in quest of spirituality, his individuality a common one to all participants in the new movement, as it is called. In 1892, the boldest effort of Desjardins, a small pamphlet, The Present Duty, appeared. It created a sensation in the thinking world of Paris. It marked a definite stage accomplished in the new movement and an arrival at one stopping place, at least. While the critics were still diagnosing over the pamphlet as a theory, a small band of men, avowing the same convictions as Desjardins, proceeded to test it as a practical truth. They enrolled themselves into a union for moral action, which had for its object to associate together, without regard to religious or political beliefs, all serious-minded men who cared to work for the formation of a healthy public opinion, for a moral awakening, and for the education and strengthening of the modern decadent or enervated willpower. In general, it is common interests, doctrines, needs that bring men together in associations. The Union for Moral Action sought, on the contrary, to associate men of diverse interests and opinions, adversaries even, into collaboration for the common morality. In response to the interpolations, questions and doubts evoked by the present duty, Desjardins published in the Debat a series of articles on the conversion of the church. They contributed still more to differentiate him from the other leaders of the new movement. In fact, few caring to share the responsibility of such radical utterances, he has been left in literary isolation in his advanced position, a position which, although it can but command the admiration and respect of the press, and the educational and religious contingent of Paris, nonetheless attracts sarcasm and irony in the world's centre of wit, sensual tolerance and moral scepticism, 
As the reproach of his literary confrères expresses it, the author has given way before the apostle. The life to be lived commanded the sacrifice. Desjardins makes now but rare appearances in his old journalistic places, and in literature he has determinatively severed connections through which fame and fortune might confidently be expected. He now gives his writings anonymously to the small weekly publication, the official organ of the Union for Moral Action, depending for his living upon his professorial position in the College St. Stanislas. Un Critique, one of Desjardins' earliest essays, strikes the note of his life and writings at a time when he himself was unconscious of its portentous meaning to his world and his literature. Whatever deserves to be, deserves the best attention of our intellect. Everything calls for interest, only it must be an interest divested of self-interest and sincere. But above all we must labour, labour hard, to understand, respect and tenderly love in others whatever contains one single grain of simple intrinsic goodness. Believe me, this is everywhere, and it is everywhere to be found, if you will only look for it. The supremacy of the truly good, here lies the root of the whole teaching, the whole new way of looking at things and judging men. New views of the universality of our world, of poetry, of religion, of kindness, human kindness, of virtue, of worth. Think it over. These are the objects on which our new generation is fixing its thoughts and trying to awaken yours. This it is which is so new. Translation of Madame Blaise de Bury The Present Duty There are many of us who at times have forgotten our personal troubles, however great they were, by picturing to ourselves the moral distress of souls around us, and by meditating on the possible remedy for this universal ill. Some remain serene before this spectacle. They resign themselves to fatal evil and inextricable doubt. They look with cold blood on that which is. Others, like the one who speaks here, are more affirmative, because they are more impassioned, more wounded, knowing neither how to forget nor how to be patient nor yet how to despair peaceably. They are less troubled by that which is than by that which ought to be. They have even turned towards that which ought to be, as towards the salvation for which their whole heart is calling. It is their weakness not to know how to interest themselves for any length of time in what does not in some way assume the aspect of a duty that concerns them. They do not contest, in fact, that it is a weakness not to be able to look with a disinterested eye on disease, corporal or spiritual, a weakness to feel the necessity of having something to do at the bedside of the dying, even if that something be in vain, to employ the anguish of one's heart in preparing, even up to the supreme moment, remedies in the shadow of the chamber. We are in a state of war, it would be almost cowardly to be silent about our intimate beliefs, for they are contradicted and attacked. 
we must not content ourselves with a pacification or truce which will permit us with facile weakness to open all the pores of our intelligence to ideas contrary to our conviction. It is necessary, on the contrary, to gird ourselves, to entrench ourselves. There is today, between us and many of our contemporaries, an irreconcilable disagreement that must be faced, a great combat in which parts must be taken. As far as I can see, this is what it is. In a word, our subjection to animal instinct, egoism, falsehood, absolutely evil, or are they merely inelegances? That is to say, things deprecated just at present, but which, well ornamented and perfumed with grace, might not again attract us, satisfy us, furnish us a type of life equivalent after all to the life of the sages and saints. For nothing shows us with certainty that the latter is any better than the former. Are justice and love a sure good, a sure law, and the harbour of safety? Or are they possible illusions, probable vanities? Have we a destiny, an ideal, or are we agitating ourselves without cause and without purpose for the amusement of some malicious demiurge, or simply for the absurd caprice of great pan? This is the question that divides consciences. A great subject of dispute, surely greater than that of the divinity of Jesus Christ, for example, than that even of the existence of a personal God, or of any other purely speculative question you may please, and above all, one more urgent, for there are counter-blows in it, which frighten me in my everyday existence. Me, a man kept to the business of living from the hour I awake to the light until the hour I go to sleep, and according to the answer I may give myself on this point, is the spirit in which I dig in my little garden. Personally, I have taken sides after reflection. After experience also, I do profess with conviction that humanity has a destiny and that we live for something. What is to be understood exactly by this word humanity? In short, I know not, only that this, of which I know nothing, does not exist yet, but it is on the road to existence, on the road to make itself known, and that it concerns me who am here. What must be understood by this word destiny? I do not know much more. I have only so far dreams about it, dreams born of some profound but incommunicable love, which an equal love only could understand. My conscience is not pure enough to conceive a stronger conviction. I only affirm that this destiny of humanity, if it were known, would be such that all men, ignorant or simple, could participate in it. It is already something to know that, in short, I see at least by lightning flashes from which side the future will shine, and I walk towards it and live thus, climbing up in a steep dark forest towards a point where a light is divined, a light that cannot deceive me, but which the obtruding branches of a complicated and apparent life hide from me. That which will bring me nearer it is not arguing about the probable nature of the light, but walking, I mean fortifying in myself and others a will for the good. We have on one side undecided and lukewarm allies, on the other 
adversaries, and we are forced necessarily to combat. This necessity will become clearer each day. It is the antagonism of negatives and positives, of those who tend to destroy and those who tend to reconstruct. There is no question here, be it understood, of knowing whether we are deceiving ourselves in choosing such or such a particular duty. That I would concede without trouble, having always estimated that our moral judgments, like our acts, have need of ceaseless revision and amelioration, according to an endless progression. There is a question of much more, of knowing in an absolute manner whether there be a duty for us or not. Good is in fact that which ought to be. Like Christ, who according to St. Paul is not a yes and a no, but a yes, duty is a yes. To slip into it the shadow of a possibility of a no is to destroy it. The men of today are thus negatives or positives as they range themselves under one opinion or the other, and they must range themselves under one of the two. They cannot escape. The question which divides us, to know whether we live in vain, imposes itself upon every one who opens his lips or moves his finger, upon every conscious being who breathes. That so-and-so never speaks of it, never thinks of it, may be, but their lives answer for them and testify loudly enough. I confess that at first sight the negatives seem for the moment the more numerous. They include many groups which I shall not enumerate here. I range with them the charming uncertain ones, like Monsieur Renard and his melodious disciples, the sombre and nihilistic Buddhists, all those to whom the law of the completion of man through the good is indeed foolish and chimerical, since their lives imply the negation of it. I mean to say the immense multitude of those who live in any kind of way, good, easy people, refined possibly from caprice, coquetry or laziness, but in complete moral anaesthesia. Now we come to the positives. They include, first of all, true Christians and all true Jews, attached to the profound spirit of their religion. Then the philosophers and poets who affirm or sing the moral ideal, the new disciples of Plato, the Stoics, the Kantians, famous or unknown, to whom life alone, outside of all speculation, is a solid affirmation of the possibility and sufficiency of the good. That the actions of these men and women, on the way to creating themselves free beings, human beings, have the same value as doctrine, cannot be denied. They labour and suffer here and there, each one in his own cell, each one making his own goodness consist in the realisation of what he believes to be the absolute good, making themselves faithful servants of something, existing outside of themselves, the city, religion, charity, justice, truth even, or beauty, conceived as modes of adoration. All these compose, it seems to me, one and the same church, having the philosophers and poets of duty for doctors of divinity, the heroes of duty for congregation. These may be called by the general name of positives. Let our eyes be opened. Everything that surrounds us is vitiated. 
Many of the children playing on the promenades are sickly. Their little faces are often enough marked with livid blotches. Their bones are often enough twisted, sad symptoms of the degradation of parents. At every street corner are distributed libertine productions by traders in the depravity of the weak. If any one wishes to recognise the furnace of vice burning within us, let him observe merely the looks cast upon an honest woman as she passes by respectable men, old men. What savage expressions intercepted under the feverish light of the electric lamps? What tension, what spasms of covetousness, what hallucinations of pleasure and of gold? Tragic matter here, but low tragedies a la Balzac, not those acted under an open sky by heroes. A few pistol shots from time to time, a few poisonings, some drownings. That is all that transpires of the interior evil. The rest passes away in suppressed tears, brooding hatreds, in accepted shame. In such confusion, the consciences of the best, of the most disinterested ones, lose the cleanness of their stamp. You are smiling there at an obscenity, said I to a friend. He protested, then reflecting, agreed with me, quite astonished that he had not perceived it. Honest men are troubled by all this circumjacent corruption, and rightly so, for at the bottom they are parts of it. They are distinguished from it only by more cleanliness, education, elegance, but not by principle. In fact, from top to bottom, all this society lives on sensation. That is the common trait through it all, and it is graded according to the quality of its sensations. Fundamentally, there is only sensation, with here and there unequally subtle nerves. There are no terms less reconcilable one to another than research of sensation and moral obligation. There is nothing more opposed. Therefore, he who expects all from his sensations depends absolutely on externals, upon the fortuitous things of life, in all their incoherence. He is no longer a self-centre. He feels himself no longer responsible. His personality is dissolved, evaporated. It does not react, and ambient nature already absorbs him, like some dead thing. And this is where we are. I recognise then the evil. I see it in its extent. Nevertheless, to paint this lamentable picture once more is not to show our moral ideas. Our moral idea is what we believe touching the life which shall be best. It is not exactly our life. Ever since the antique Medea of Ovid uttered that cry, many others, one after another, have groaned over the fact that, seeing the best and approving it, they yet follow the worst, alas. Such a sorrow is today profound and universal. There where vice abounds, sorrow superabounds. It is no longer that melancholy born of the insufficiency of external reality, once for all recognised, that felt by Obermann and proud romanticists, but a humble, narrow, ragged rancor, mixed with disdain, with disgust, born of our insufficiency to ourselves, perceived thoroughly. Never, I believe, have we been more generally sad than in these times. 
and it is that which saves us. I find here our greatness. He alone is lost who feels himself at ease and healthful in evil. Consciences without anxiety are the only hopeless ones. Let us hope, then, for it cannot be denied that we feel we are very ill. It is apparent that we are in labour with something which shall be our cure. The symptoms of this painful labour are not lacking. The works which are appearing now, preeminent in form, but obscure and hesitating in principles, bear signs of the stress in which they were conceived. Soon they will seem merely specious. In the poetry, romance, painting, music of today, how many exquisite works are born, not of energy guided by love, but only of a dream of energy, a dream of love, on the shores of inconsolable exile. The truth is, we no longer know what to become. When any one of the antique misfortunes strikes us, death, abandonment, ruin, we no longer bear it as our fathers did. We no longer know the dignified, peaceful mornings of old, but under an unexpected stroke, the torment, the complicated rending in the heart, show that it has been secretly undermined. We feel indeed divided within ourselves, and we need to be unified, but the inward unification is possible only for the absolutely debauched or the absolutely good man. There is no via media, half virtue rends us. Our spiritual life being in truth, miracle and mystery, I do not know how to explain what each one knows so well. I do not know how there is developed within us that sublime state, known and described under different names by Socrates, Plato, Plotinus, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, St. Paul, St. Augustine, Tauler, the author of The Imitation, Shelley, Emerson, Tolstoy. But I know that such a state, which we all know by experience, merits alone the name of positive morality. Well then, history shows that what is true of each one of us personally is true of society. The Conversion of the Church While a purer spirit is visibly awakening in ailing humanity and turning it again to Christ, the religion of Christ is rejuvenating. His church is no longer motionless. Thus, in the midst of a great confusion, two religious movements which correspond with one another are defining themselves with sufficient clearness. On the one side, men without any precise faith, and who thought themselves without any faith, have perceived that they carry within themselves that which they sought, an explanation of themselves, say a principle of salvation. At whatever point these thinking men arrive, it is apparent at the present that they are progressing in the way of the evangel and following the path of the cross. On the other side, the Roman Catholic Church, governed by a vigilant Pope, has declared herself. She has spoken of love at the moment when all were thirsty for love and self-forgetfulness. She intercedes for the suffering masses at the moment when others were going to do it outside of her, perhaps against her. And more, she is resolutely today accenting spirituality, after having so long accented ritual or policy. The new spiritualists and the renewed Christians 
are thus pushed forward to a meeting with one another by the need of their practical cooperation, and also perhaps by the consciousness of their intimate kinship. They are marching from both sides with the same rallying cry, Fraternity and Sacrifice. Here they are flying from the city of the plain, where a material civilization reigns, and claiming to suffice all. They are emigrating. They know not whither, if it be only towards the heights. There they are descending from their high, narrow, clerical, shut-in fastness. The conversion that the church should make is a conversion of the heart. It must become again a school of true liberty and love. Herein lies all the anxiety of the moment, and the great Catholic question lies not between the church and the republic, but between the church and the people, or rather between the church and the pure spirit. By loving the people in truth, and by making itself the people, it is clear that the Catholic Church would simply be returning to its original source. Now, returning to its original source is, in a word, all that the Church should do, and that which, following her example, all old institutions should do so as to live and to make us live. To last means to be reborn perpetually. In truth, each one of these institutions was born in former times from a definite need of the soul, and at first they responded exactly to it, and that is why they prevailed. All their strength came from the fact that they were necessary. Their weakness comes from the fact that they are no longer so. At first the religious community was formed of the imperious necessity of a deliverance from evil. It was not for ornament, not for the charm of burning incense under arches. Neither was it formed to do what kings, warriors and judges are sufficient to do. These last would have absorbed it, but they cannot, although they try to do so every day. But they can never do so, unless the church abandons her own functions to usurp theirs. She would then, by forgetting her destination, commit suicide. But even then, another church would form in response to the spiritual hunger and thirst which never ceases. Thus the whole problem of the existence of an institution is to remain forever necessary and therefore faithful to its original source. Let us add that civil society cannot maintain itself without also constant rejuvenation, becoming young again. It also exists only by the active consent of willing minds. It is essential for the harmony of the whole that each person should be an individual and not an automaton. As men, divided by the external accidents of habit, condition, fortune, and united by that which is fundamental within them, the weakening of that which is within them disintegrates them. And thence the principal cause of our divisions comes from hardly anyone today being in his heart that which he appears to be. Therefore, to bring back diverse conditions to their original source and to the reason of their being, to re-establish the principle in the centre of the life of each, is to do the work of unification. To say to the priests, be primitive Christians, imitate the chosen master, 
is, socially speaking, a good action which all Christians and non-Christians should applaud, for the salvation of all depends upon it. The remedy of our malady, without doubt, lies not in having all France to Mass, but first that all should make their faith the rule of their actions. That which lies at the bottom of our consciences is the thing by which we are brothers. Two Impressions From Notes Contemporane Two impressions have remained with me. They date from a month's wandering in Switzerland, at a time when there are no tourists to be met. The first is of the exquisite scenes of wintry nature, as she shows herself at this season, when none come to visit her. Still, reposeful, silent, veiled. How much more touching and impressive than when profaned by the summer crowd. This is the moment when the Jura should be seen. The pine woods on the hills are but faintly powdered with snow, and the patches of dry, rusty vegetation beneath lie on the grey stones like the broad red stains of blood. Seeds hang here and there on the bare branches, mixed with the tendrils of the wild vine, or with ghostly clusters of what were the flowers of the clematis. The falling leaves are golden, those already fallen are of an ashen grey. The delicate tracery overhead is of infinite complexity, exquisite in its endless detail, and the whole of this disrobed nature, in its unadorned simplicity, has an impress of sincerity that reminds you of the drawings of Holbein. Flat pools of shallow water lie about, carpeted with mosses and mirroring the sky. The smoke of the huts rises upward, gaunt and straight. No one is near, there are no passers-by, and there is no sound, except that of a waterfall, fuller in its rush than at any other season. Silence, a silence so fragile that the step of a single wayfarer on the road would be enough to break it, reigns undisturbed and covers everything like a winding-sheet. My second impression is of another kind, though almost as comforting, at least by the contrast. It was given me by the conversation of the peasant folk, plain, humble mountaineers. The speech and thought of these men is plain and direct, devoid of artifice, clear and fathomable. They furnish you an unvarnished tale of their own simple experience, the life experience of a man, no more. They neither invent nor disguise, and are totally incapable of presenting either fact or circumstances in a way that shall suggest to the hearer another or a different sense. Our woeful habit of ridiculing what lies indeed at the bottom of our hearts they have never learned. They copy, line by line and stroke by stroke, the meaning that is in them, the intentions of their inner mind. In our Parisian haunts, it seems to me that their success would be a problem. But they are heedless of success, and to us, when we escape from our vitiated centres, from an atmosphere poisoned by that perpetual straining after effect, the pure, undressed simplicity of these primitives is as refreshing as to our overexcited and exhausted nerves are the green, quiet, hidden nooks of their alpine solitudes. 
With them there is no need of imaginative expression. The trouble of thought is useless. Their words are the transparent revelation of their beliefs. The calm brought to the hyper-civilized spirit by this plainness and directness of nature is absolutely indescribable. And when I came to reflect on the profoundness of mental quietude, I might say of consolation, that I had attained to during my wanderings, I could not help recognising what a cruel, fatal part is played in the lives of all of us by irony. It is, with Frenchmen, a kind of veneer, worn even by the most unpretentious in place of whatever may be real in them, and where this outward seeming is absent, they are completely at a loss. Well-bred Frenchmen rarely, if ever, have or pronounce an opinion or pass a judgment, unless with a playful obliquity of judgment and on things in general. They assume an air of knowing what they are talking about and of having probed the vanity of all human effort before they have ever attempted or approached it. And even this indifference, this disdain, this apparent dislike to the responsibility of so much as an opinion, even this is not natural, not innate. Its formula is not of its own creation. It is but the repetition of what was originated by someone else. The truth is that in our atmosphere all affirmative action is difficult. It is hard either to be or to do. This habit of irony has destroyed all healthful activity here. It is a mere instrument of evil. If you grasp it, it turns to mischief in your hands and either slips from and eludes them or wounds you as often as not mortally. End of section 34